You're listening to the Redeeming History Podcast, Season 1, The End of the Age, brought to you by Rebel Alliance Media. episode, we plotted through a few decades worth of Roman and Jewish tension in Judea. The Jews were a proud people and were not fond of being under the rule of another kingdom, even if that had been their experience now for hundreds of years by this point. But even when being ruled by other kingdoms during this time, the Jewish people often received preferential treatment in terms of their religious cult that many other conquered nations did not. They were able to practice their temple worship with minimal interruption from Rome and minimal requirements of practicing the Roman Caesar cult. This, as we saw, slowly began to change in the decades leading up to the Jewish-Roman War. This attitude shift can be seen in the writings of the Roman historian Tacitus, writing shortly after the war at the beginning of the second century. In it, he gives an account of the history and the origin of the Jewish people that is an odd mixture of fact, fiction, and downright slander in some points. And at the end of his account, he gives a description of the Jewish religious cult, and it is obvious that the Roman understanding is that they are little more than barbarians. Quote, Whatever their origin, these observances are sanctioned by their antiquity. The other practices of the Jews are sinister and revolting, and have entrenched themselves by their very wickedness. Wretches of the most abandoned kind, who had no use for the religion of their fathers, took to contributing dues and free will offerings to swell the Jewish exchequer. And other reasons for their increasing wealth may be found in their stubborn loyalty and ready benevolence toward brother Jews. But the rest of the world they confront with the hatred reserved for enemies. They will not feed or intermarry with Gentiles. Though a most lascivious people, the Jews avoid sexual intercourse with women of alien race. Among themselves, nothing is barred. They have introduced the practice of circumcision to show that they are different from others. Proselytes to Jewry adopt the same practices, and the very first lesson they learn is to despise the gods, shed all feelings of patriotism, and consider parents, children, and brothers as readily expendable. However, the Jews see to it that their numbers increase. It is a deadly sin to kill an unwanted child, and they think that eternal life is granted to those who die in battle or execution, hence their eagerness to have children and their contempt for death. Rather than cremate their dead, they prefer to bury them in imitation of the Egyptian fashion, and they have the same concern and beliefs about the world below but their conception of heavenly things is quite different. The Egyptians worship a variety of animals in half-human, half-bestial forms, whereas the Jewish religion is a purely spiritual monotheism. They hold it to be impious to make idols of perishable materials in the likeness of man. 
For them, the Most High and Eternal cannot be portrayed by human hands and will never pass away. For this reason, they erect no images in their cities, still less in their temples. Their kings are not so flattered, the Roman emperors not so honored. However, their priests, used to perform their chants to the flutes and the drums, crowned with ivy and a golden vine, was discovered in the temple, and this has led some to imagine that the god thus worshipped was Prince Liber, that is, Dionysius, the conqueror of the East. But the two cults are diametrically opposed. Liber founded a festive and happy cult. The Jewish belief is paradoxical and degraded. Tacitus's Histories 5.5 These diametrically opposed belief systems now come to a head, although there are moderates on both sides whose hope is to avoid war, these parties are not able to snuff out the sparks that were lit in the last episode. This is episode 6 of The End of the Age, Fanning the Flame. If you recall, we ended the episode last time with Gesius Floris, the last in a long line of Roman procurators over the area of Judea. Josephus perceived that his actions were the final straw that led the Jews into war with Rome. Aside from Floris, the other main character on the Roman side that we will be dealing with in this episode is Cestius Gallus. Cestius, as governor of Syria was Florus's immediate superior. Cestius was far more reasonable toward the Jews than was Florus, and yet despite his best efforts, Florus will eventually get what he wants. Here is how Josephus introduces us to their relationship. Quote, when Cestius Gallus, governor of Syria, visited Jerusalem at the Passover, a huge throng surrounded him, denouncing Florus as having ruined the country. Florus, who was at his side, scoffed at the protests, but Cestius promised the people greater moderation from Florus in the future and returned to Antioch. Florus accompanied him as far as Caesarea, scheming all the while to drive the Jews into open revolt. For he was afraid that if peace continued, they would accuse him before Caesar, whereas war would conceal his atrocities. Unquote. In June of 1914, Franz Ferdinand, Archduke of Austria and heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was assassinated in Sarajevo by the Bosnian Serb Gavrilo Princip. This led to Austria-Hungary declaring war on Serbia, directly triggering war between almost all of the European countries, resulting in what we now know as World War I. When we look back at history, it is usually difficult to draw such straight lines, but we are about to see something similar happen in our story. An incident which occurs that leads directly to the end. In May of AD 66, an incident occurs in Caesarea involving a conflict between the Jews and the Greeks. 
Like in most cities, the Jews had erected a synagogue there in Caesarea, but the neighboring land was owned by a Greek citizen. The Jews attempted to purchase the land from him, and even offered much more than it was actually worth, but he refused to sell it to them. And not only that, but he then began to erect buildings and workshops on the property, leaving the Jews a tiny, narrow path to get to the entrance of the synagogue. A few of the more young and impetuous Jews attempted to physically stop the construction, but Florus stopped them. So the Jews tried other means. They bribed Florus to force the building to stop. He promptly took the bribe, but he left without doing anything, leaving the two parties to take care of it themselves. The following Sabbath, as the Jews were coming to the synagogue, this is what happened. Quote, They encountered a troublemaker who had placed a pot beside the entrance, bottom side up, on which he was sacrificing birds. A certain passionate youth, furious at this outrage, attacked the Caesareans who were expecting a clash and had arranged the mock sacrifice. Unquote. The Jews then took a copy of the law that was at the synagogue in Caesarea and fled to a nearby town from which they sent a delegation to Florus imploring his assistance and reminding him of the bribe he was so quick to have already received from them. But Florus, rather than helping them, threw the Jewish delegation into prison for having taken the copy of the law from Caesarea. Quote, this news outraged Jerusalem, although the people restrained their feelings. But Florus, determined to drive them to revolt, extracted 17 talents from the temple treasury, claiming government necessity. The infuriated people rushed to the temple, shouting their contempt for the procurator. Unquote. In Jerusalem, the people mocked Florus. At the temple, they passed around a basket, and the people took up an offering for, quote, the poor beggar Floris, who seemed to be in such desperate need of money. Floris, seeing this as a good excuse to pillage the city, marched on Jerusalem with his army. Once again, in order to shame Floris, the citizens of Jerusalem came out to applaud his army in a mocking fashion, which achieved the goal of infuriating Florus. He stayed that night at the palace in Jerusalem, and the next morning called the chief priests and leaders to hand over those responsible for the insult. The leaders of the city tried to convince him that it was simply some unnamed, impetuous youths who were responsible, and therefore to ignore the insult and spare the many innocent for the sake of the few offenders. Quote, Floris became all the more incensed and shouted to his soldiers to plunder the upper market and kill any they met. The troops not only sacked the market, but broke into the houses and massacred the occupants. The city ran with blood, and 3,600 men, women, and children were cruelly slaughtered or crucified. Unquote. The next day, crowds gathered to lament the dead 
and of course to shout curses against Floris. The leaders of the city pleaded with the people to keep quiet so as not to further provoke Floris to more violence. The crowds complied, which ironically infuriated Floris even more because his desire was actually to incite them to revolt. In order to now accomplish this goal, he devised a new scheme. He forced the Jewish leaders to meet an army of Roman troops coming from Caesarea. But at the same time, he ordered the troops to not return their greeting, hoping that it would cause the Jews to become upset. Then he ordered the troops to attack them if they became unruly or disrespectful. The ruse worked like a charm. The Jews did feel disrespected. Some began shouting against Floris, and the troops attacked. The Jews fled back into the city with the troops hot on their tail. They attempted to make it all the way up to the temple in order to capture and plunder it. Floris saw what was happening, and he left the palace with his troops to join them. However, they underestimated the people who blocked the streets and fought them. The people even lined the rooftops and rained down projectiles on them. Realizing that there was no hope in reaching the temple, Floris left Jerusalem and went back to Caesarea. Now, needing a new reason for hostilities, Floris sent a report to the governor Cestius, accusing the Jews of revolt and blaming them for the events that had just recently taken place. The Jewish leaders then sent their own delegation to tell their side of the story. So, Cestius sent one of his tribunes, Neapolitanus, to investigate. On his way, he met Agrippa. Now, this Agrippa is son of the Herod Agrippa, whom we met in the previous episode. Now, he was no longer a youth, and so he was a king in his own right, but he was never given the territory of Judea like his father. Nevertheless, he was still very sympathetic to the plight of the Jews. Neapolitanus and Agrippa entered Jerusalem, and now that Florus was gone, found the place to be quite peaceful, and commended them for their loyalty to Rome. The people pleaded with Agrippa to send ambassadors to Nero to accuse Florus. Agrippa, while sympathetic, did not agree with this plan of action, not wanting to further provoke Florus to war. Josephus records his speech attempting to calm the tensions. Quote, Granting that some of the procurators were brutal, he said, It does not follow that all Romans are unjust to you. They do not intentionally send us oppressive governors, and cannot in the West see their officers in the East. After due complaint, he continued, moderate successors should follow. Unquote. Agrippa goes on to argue that if they were unsuccessful against Pompey when he conquered the city over a century ago, what hope would they have now against an even bigger, stronger Roman Empire? He then describes the horrors of war which would befall them if they pursued this course of action, and then he openly wept. The people tried to argue that they did not desire war against Rome, but only Florus. But Agrippa argues that according to their actions, they were already at war with Rome. He convinced them to pay a small tribute to Caesar and begin collecting the tax again, and the threat of war 
seemed to be past. Until, that is, he told the people to obey Floris until Nero could send a successor. The people were so exasperated with Floris by this point that this request caused them to become abusive with their own ally, Agrippa, to the point where they actually banished him from the city. This gave those who were the most inclined to rebellion the boost they needed, and a group of Sicarii, the zealots within the zealots, went up and captured Masada, which was supposed to be a near-impenetrable fortress, and they killed all the Roman guards stationed there. The zealots and revolutionaries also had sway over the temple priests, who refused to accept offering or sacrifice from any foreigner, which in itself was a declaration of independence from Rome because it meant that the customary sacrifices offered in behalf of Caesar and Rome were now suspended. The leading citizens and chief priests now realized that things had gone too far and that the revolutionary party would not listen to any reason, and they were unable to check the rebellion. Realizing that they would not be spared in the event of war, they wrote to both Floris and Agrippa, requesting that they come with an army to squash the rebellion and to show that they were still loyal to Rome. Here is how Josephus records the response that both Floris and Agrippa give to the requests. Quote, Floris rejoiced at the news, but dismissed the delegation without a reply. Agrippa, anxious to save the city and the temple, immediately sent 2,000 cavalry to help those opposed to insurrection. In the next episode, we will see how the biggest threat to Jerusalem was not actually Florus or Nero or any other Roman, but was actually the infighting amongst the different Jewish factions in the city. We will cover the results of Agrippa's attempt to save the city from the zealots in AD 66, all the way up to Titus's army surrounding Jerusalem in AD 70, before concluding Season 1 with the final Siege of Jerusalem. 